Hi friends, welcome to The Faithful Podcast. Stories of people who walked by faith and gained a fuller understanding of the faithfulness of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Baker. Thanks so much for listening. This is part one of my interview with Christine Patel. Christine is a friend that I met through a small group Bible study last year. She's a wife and a mother to three beautiful children, and I have so much respect for her. Soon after we met, she was given a diagnosis that would change her life. So here is part one of my interview with Christine Patel. So, Christine, thank you so much for joining me today to chat. I'm really glad that you're able to be a part of this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about this. Yeah. um, You know, you and I met each other, what's been like a year ago, probably around Mm -hmm. that long. And um, I mean, we've, we've been in Bible study together and I've gotten to see a lot of your insight and it's really been cool. And I'm um, excited to have what, have all of the insight that you've experienced over the last you know, period of time that I've even known you uh, shared with each person that listens. So um, yeah, I know there's so much, you have so much wisdom and I look up to you a Thanks. lot. So I'm really excited for everyone to hear what you have to say. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing. I feel very passionate about you know what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm excited to have an opportunity to share about it. Oh, I love when people feel comfortable sharing. So um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to these days. Uh, so um, I used to be a long time ago, uh, an elementary school teacher. I taught reading. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher like forever. I used to you know, play school in my room when I was a little kid. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, as I, as I grew older, I got married, um, had kids. Um, I became a stay at home mom. I left teaching elementary school, but um, still had that passion for teaching in me. And I um, I became a women's ministry leader at our church. I did that okay. several years. I taught lots of Bible studies and wrote Bible studies and just fell in love with studying God's word. Um, so that's been my, my calling. My gift is to teach. Yeah. Um, I've been married to my husband, Nick, uh, for 16 years. Actually, our anniversary, I think, is next weekend. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's been an amazing 16 years. Yeah. We have three kids. They are 14, 12, and six. And, um, I feel like weird at answering this question of what we've been up to because we've been on lockdown. And so, um, the answer is nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. (laughs) We've been doing homeschooling and we're finished with that now, which is great. So Mm -hmm. the kids, playing video games all day and I'm just like <laughs> relaxing and enjoying not not homeschooling recuperating yes yeah <laughs> yeah I understand this whole lockdown stuff has been really good in some ways because we kind of slowed down and in other ways it's been like you know there's a, there's still deadlines like I teach and yeah. you know my kids still have to turn in work <laughs> and so I'm like having to do double duty between those. And then I'm like, oh, but I have all this time so I can do all these projects. And then I'm just exhausted at the end of the day. So I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it's more work than it was before, but in other ways it's a lot more relaxing because it's self-paced. Yeah. What do you feel like you've enjoyed a lot about this, this time with your family and stuff? Oh, wow. Um, 
You know, it's been really cool just the amount of time that we've been spending together and enjoying each other's company. Yeah. Um, like my kids, when they're on summer break, you know, usually the first couple of weeks, it's everybody's getting along wonderfully. Everybody's happy. Everybody's sleeping in. Mm-hmm. And then like, a month in, six weeks in, like everybody's kind of like, we've been around each other too long. We're kind of <laughs> open up against each other. Yeah. And so I thought for sure that, you know, have, having had school canceled that, um, it was going to be just awful, but everybody's been getting along so well. We've really been wow. enjoying company and, you know, my husband's home for dinner, like every single night on time. And oh so we goodness. get yeah. every night. It's been great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, there are definitely plenty of challenges to this time, but I think there's a lot of really good that we've been able to kind of glean from it. So it's, you know, it's, <laughs> We don't like what our world is going through, but definitely we're able to try and find that silver lining. And for us, it's been kind of the same. Like we see each other a lot, but it's been a different kind of dynamic to it. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I agree. It's been it's been good. I mean, even my kids who are di- way different ages, different genders, they, they bicker all the time. But there's mm-hmm. been some really cool moments where they actually like play together. Yes, <laughs> my kids too. I'm like, wow, look at you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then I take a picture and I post it cause I'm like, I need to remember this forever because it doesn't happen often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so can you tell us about how you came to know Jesus? Um, yeah, so that's, you can't really tell the story about how I came to know Jesus without telling my grandmother's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, they're very intertwined with each other. Um, she was, um, like the very beginning of the baby boomer. She was born in 1945. Uh, her name was Linda Lee, mm. um, which is how I actually got the name for my youngest child. Her name's Leela. Oh, okay. Sort of a little morph on that. But anyway, um, she was a bit of a wild child. Not a bit, a lot. <laughs> uh, she got pregnant at a young age. She was, I think, 16 or 17. She got pregnant with my mom. Um, and her parents forced her to marry my grandfather. And they were living in her parents' basement um, until they could, you know, get a little older, get a little bit more established. And so Mm -hmm. um, they ended up having four children together, you know, they, after, you know, moving out, getting established and things like that. Um, But my grandmother still had that wild streak in her. She was, um, she was an alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen two alcoholics live together, but it's not, (laughs) it's not usually a tenable situation. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember my grandfather telling me about how she very much enjoyed going out every night to the bars and drinking and doing who knows what and just disappearing for hours and hours at a time. And, you know, sometimes she wouldn't come home till the next morning and just, you know, you can sort of draw your inferences there. But obviously that was not um, health, a healthy marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so they ended up getting divorced, and um, her behavior c- continued. Um, my mom tells me about how you know she lived in. She calls it the projects. I I don't know if there's like a more PC name for it, but it was government assisted housing, and yeah. it was a somewhat tough neighborhood. Actually, very interesting. My Prince grew up a few streets away from my mom. They grew oh. up. To- oh, yeah. That's cool. she- he was a few years older than her, so they didn't really hang around each other, but she said he was, like, very quiet and, you know, very shy, kept to himself. Um, what, was anyway. his, what was his real name? I'm just curious to his know. His real name is Prince. His oh, name is okay. 
Yeah, his parents named him Prince. Oh, okay. I thought that was a stage name. No, no. (laughs) Okay, Uh, sorry. Back to your important story. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, um, you know, my mom and her siblings were kind of running free around the neighborhood all the time. And there was a guy that um, his mom grew up in the depression. And so she was a little bit of a hoarder. She was a widow, but her son would come by. His name was Bob. He used to come by all the time and just, you know, help fix up her house. And he was really good at fixing up cars. So my uncles were very, they liked Bob a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but my grandmother continued, like I said, this, this behavior. I remember my aunt telling me about how, um, you know, my grandmother would bring home strange men very frequently. And my aunt would hide in her closet mm. because she was just, you know, a little bit creeped out that, you know, who's this guy? And um, I remember her also telling me about how, you know, they never had any fresh fruits and vegetables in the house as a kid. Um, mm. So I know my grandmother was trying, at least trying, but, um, you know, struggling to to survive, to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she met a man named Billy. And um, Billy was, I, I, I used this, this phrase sparingly on, on anybody, but Billy was an evil man. Mm. Uh, he was physically abusive. Um, he pushed my mom down the stairs when she was nine months pregnant with me. Oh my gosh. Um, he was emotionally abusive, um, incredibly impulsive. Just, you know, he'd wake up one morning and decide just to tear a wall down in the house and just, he'd do it. Mm. You know, there was planning on it. He just did it. Yeah. Uh, he had a very frightening demeanor. I mean, I remember looking at him, um, as a very young child and just being terrified of him. Um, and you know, he used to, I remember he used to beat my older brother and I with a belt. Mm. I was maybe two at the time. Um, and I think what especially made him evil though, was that he was involved in the occult kind of things. Um, he, like I said, had a very intimidating demeanor. And so he would, um, sort of intimidate my aunts and uncles and my grandmother, forced them into doing these seances, these demon conjurings. Oh, wow. And um, my mom and dad were still dating at the time. And um, my mom had me when she was very young as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they weren't even old enough to get married, but they were dating at the time. And um, I remember my dad telling me about how they had, these seance things would happen very regularly. And he was there for one. And he said that, you know, they had the candles going and they were conjuring some demons and my aunt he said he remembers her speaking in a demonic tongue and it it wasn't her voice coming out of her mouth oh my gosh it was frightening and he said that he remembers just seeing this vision this sense of oppressive darkness coming over the whole house and it was like hopeless and frightening and when it ended, I remember my dad telling me about how everybody, like my aunts and uncles and him and my mom were all just like, that was terrifying. Mm. And Billy and my grandmother were both kind of gleefully clapping their hands excitedly. Wasn't that fun? Let's do that again. Oh my gosh. Uh, So yeah. (laughs) Um, But that, like I said, that happened pretty often, but then, um, you know, Billy was very abusive and by the time my uncles became teenagers and started growing a little bit bigger, he wasn't able to physically intimidate them anymore. Mm-hmm. And my uncle told me about how one time Billy was very drunk and my uncle just, he was trying to, you know, start some mess with my uncle and my uncle just hauled off and punched him in the face. And wow. 
Billy fell backwards and my uncle said he had never seen Billy look terrified before, but at that moment he looked frightened. And the next day he left, never saw him. He mm. just took off. And, um, so from there, um, I think that's about the time that my grandmother's life started to change. I think she was at that point kind of had enough of Billy, but was afraid of leaving him. But my uncle kind of decided for her that he's, he's going to leave. Yeah. Um, but around that time, um, after, you know, long after Billy had left, my grandmother started dating Bob from the old neighborhood. Oh. And <laughs> Bob was a Christian. Mm-hmm. And he was in love with my grandmother, just head over heels. And he used to call her lovely Linda Lee. He just totally enamored with her. And he started taking her to church. And I don't recommend missionary dating, but in this instance, it worked. Um, and this was, I was maybe three or four at the time that they started dating. And then eventually they got married. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandmother's life from that point did a complete 180. She was a completely different woman. And so I say that, you know, all the stuff that used to happen in my grandmother's life was stuff that other people told me um, because the way that I knew her, I wouldn't have believed that any of that was true. It just, I had to be told about this and this and this and this that happened until finally I was like, oh, wow, she really struggled the first part of her life. Yeah. But it brought her so much joy. I used to say with her um, during the summers when I was a kid, and it just brought her so much joy to bring me to church and to show me off to her friends. And Mm. she was just excited to go to church. Like, just watching her get ready for church on Sunday morning, she was just giddy. And um, I remember her just having like these Christian books spread out, spread out all over her coffee table. And <laughs> she used to watch the 700 Club and sip her coffee in the mornings. And mm-hmm. it was just, to me, that was the most peaceful time in my life up till that point. Um, yeah. And, you know, like I said, I could not believe what she used to be like. Um but she, to me, was like the embodiment of peace, of Jesus's peace. And I always wanted to be around her. And I always wanted to be in church with her because I loved her. And I wanted that happiness with her. Um, and so I, like my parents kind of had me in and out of church a lot when I was um, a bit younger, like under eight-ish. But then after that, around, you know, 10, 12, something like that, um, we just stopped going to church altogether. But I had a Bible and I always knew that I belonged in church. Like I knew that I was, you know, once I got older, once I was a little bit more settled in my living situation, I was going to start going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that time, my grandmother had been diagnosed with breast cancer and um, she ended up passing away when I was 12 years old. Mm. Um, and it wasn't too much long after that I met my husband. And um, he had become a Christian. He was a former Hindu, former atheist, but mm. felt this a really cool calling. Um, we can get into that another time. But he, um, he and I started becoming really close friends and eventually started dating. And we both knew, like, you know, we need to start going to church. But we were kind of in the process of wedding planning when we both really felt that pull to start going to church. And so... And the Sunday after we got back from our honeymoon, it was like four days later or something, mm-hmm. we, we had our bottoms in a pew in church. And I was just, it wasn't the church that we were going to settle in, eventually settle into forever. But it just walking into that church that first time in so many years, I felt like I was at home and I knew 
I, I need to be around other believers. I need to be under some good teaching. And we did eventually find a good church and, you know, fell head over heels in love with Jesus and just started passionately studying and reading the word and praying and found great friends and great Christian community. I know that was a really long story about how I found Jesus, but I think that it's a really cool story about how, you know, God has used a terrible situation and, 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 you know, brought, brought me into faith because of, you know, the mess that she was in and how it got transformed. That's incredible. Like to go Mm -hmm. from being with a man who was regularly doing seances and trying to summon demons to somebody who was going to put her on a path toward righteousness like that. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Like that's, um, amazing grace. Yeah. Like you said, missionary dating, you know, for anybody that's not familiar with that term is basically dating with the intent of getting your partner saved or more Christian or whatever the phrase might be, but like, um, is definitely not generally recommended. But I think it's really cool when you hear those very rare kind of stories where it actually does bring about transformation and how God used Bob to help bring about that transformation is really beautiful. Yeah, it was. Bob is, um, you know, my grandmother has been gone now for many years, but Bob still sends me cards every year for Christmas and my birthday. And he just, every card is always about how, you know, oh, you're lovely Linda Lee and she used to love you so much. And it just, you know, he's just a joy to talk to and, and, you know, have in my life. Yes. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me how you and your husband met? I mean, that seems like a pretty unlikely, uh, pairing coming together from such different backgrounds. Yeah, it was, it was, um, again, it's very cool how God worked this together. Um, so I met my husband actually when I was, I think 14, um, we were in high school. Um, I'm a year older than him. So Um, I was about the summer before my sophomore year started and it was the summer before his freshman year started, but we were in band together. Um, I played the flute and he played the tuba. Uh, (laughs) Talk about contrasting instruments even. That's hilarious. We were on the far opposite ends of the band. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we had a lot of mutual friends um, while we were in high school. We didn't really ever talk to each other much until sort of the end of our high school years. Um, And I don't know if you remember AOL. Oh, Uh, I do. You've got mail. (laughs) Yeah. um, We used to, before there was text messaging, we used to all get on AOL at night and chat with our friends and send them instant messages. Oh, yeah. And you'd perfectly craft your away message, I remember. Yes, I remember that. And I had an IM message. I think you could customize them for, like, for certain people. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, I remember chatting with one of my friends one night, and um, I asked her, so what are you doing? And she told me she was talking to Nick. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, what's his screen name? I'm going to send him a message. And we immediately hit it off. I mean, we weren't dating at all. It wasn't like I had a boyfriend at the time. He had another girl that he was interested in. Um mm-hmm we just instantly became best friends. Um, we talked for hours and hours and hours almost every single day. Um, and there wasn't any kind of romantic interest at all. It was just like, he's a really interesting guy. And he was an atheist at this time, which is part of the reason why I wasn't interested because I always knew that I was going to marry a Christian. Yeah. Um, so eventually we kind of early college years, we started talking more and more and more and it started 
you know, the friendship started deepening a lot more. And finally, I think one day I realized, like, if he ever gets a girlfriend, I'm not going to be okay with this because, like, we're really close and I don't think I would like that. (laughs) So I had to, like, gather up the courage to tell him, and I did. And he was like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, we started dating. Um, I think I was, like, 19, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, during those years, about 17, 18, somewhere in there is when he became a Christian. Mm. So I think... Yeah. Yeah. So cool. That's awesome. And I think that, you know, something that you guys are both passionate about is evangelism and, you know, Mm -hmm. defending the faith. And that's really interesting. I mean, I, a lot of times the people that are the strongest defenders of the faith are people who come from backgrounds of really questioning, like an atheist back, atheistic background. That makes so much sense why, you know, he would once convinced be, you know, super convinced and super, um, uh, I don't know, I can't talk anymore, but, uh, you know, like yeah, he's very much, firm. Yeah, yeah, firmly established. very firmly. There you go. Thank you for sounding smart when I sound <laughs> <laughs> bumbling for my words, but you know, like it's, he's, he's struggled and he's grappled with it and he's come out the other side more secure in his, uh, realizations because of it. And I think that's awesome. And you, You've but you saw the transformation. I mean, I grew up in a family that was, you know, very much. We all go to church. We all do the good things. And I mean, my parents are amazing people, and they do incredible work for the Lord. But I, I never had that kind of life experience where you've, you know, really seen that kind of transformation. So that's really awesome. Yeah, it's been cool watching him over the years, um, just wrestle out his faith and how you know he. He just has that kind of personality where he wants hard evidence. He wants proof. And, you know, obviously in a situation with faith, you're not always going to have that. Yeah. Um, you know, just watching him work through that and ask these questions and just discuss them with him has been very interesting. I'm not always smart enough to answer all of his questions and he has to go elsewhere to smarter people than me. <laughs> but, you know, I can at least be a sounding board and give some opinions. Yeah. No, that's good. That's awesome. So um, you, in the last year that I've known you, your, your world was kind of shaken by diagnosis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was uh, huge. That was, you know, one of those defining life moments. Um, yeah. But leading up to that, I think, you know, just to kind of give a full rounded testimony of what God had done through this. Um, so my youngest child is, she's six now, um, mm-hmm. but she was about four-ish, Um I started praying about, you know, God, what is it that you want me to do um, once she goes to school? Because I have been a stay-at-home mom for, I think it was like 12, 13 years, something like that at that point. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, God, if you want me to continue being a stay-at-home mom, I'll do that. If you want me to go back to work as a teacher, I'll do that. If you want me to pursue teaching Bible studies and writing Bible studies more often, I'll do that. But I just need some direction because I can't do it all. And, um, I prayed that prayer for years, for about two to three years, and I was getting nothing. Mm. And I started getting very, um, I don't want to say hopeless because it wasn't hopeless, but just, I guess, confused. God, why aren't you answering me? God, don't you care? Have you abandoned me, God? Like, what? Why aren't you answering me? I know that you have something for me, and, you know, I can wait if it's not time, but can you just give me a little hint at least and know what to gear toward? 
and I got nothing. So um, starting up that year that my youngest child started kindergarten, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to help God out a little bit. Um, (laughs) And so I started, you know, I decided I was going to call it leaving doors open. And so I was teaching, um, I taught two different Bible studies and I was teaching reading intervention and I was subbing in addition to just doing all the stay at home mom stuff that I was doing. And I was getting kind of worn out and still not getting any answers, but you know, um, I was spending more time in schools. And so because of that, I was getting sick more frequently. Um, that fall I ended up getting mono strep, pink eye and bronchitis all at the same time, which was awful. Yeah. And then that spring, I had this cold that just would not go away. This was spring of 2019. Mm -hmm. It hung around for like three weeks. Just, you know, normally when I get colds, it's, you know, a week or so and it's gone. But this was just not going away. And then um, one day I woke up in the morning and I was seeing double. Mm. And it went away after a minute or two. And I just thought, oh, that's odd. And I just went about my day, but then it happened again the next day and it was lasting even longer. And I was thinking, you know, this is not normal. Double vision is not a normal symptom of a cold. Mm -hmm. And so I shared it with my husband and I'm, I tend to be a little hesitant about sharing things with him because he, he gets anxious about my health. Like, you know, he's, he's very sweet and loves me a lot. And so I I have to be careful sometimes with what I share, but this was something that I shared with him and he was like, okay, I'm going to find a doctor. And so he found me a neuro ophthalmologist. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what is um, a neuro ophthalmologist is a neurologist who specializes in, um, I'm sorry, it's an ophthalmologist who specializes in the neurology of the eye. Mm-hmm. And so I went to go see this doctor and I did about five hours of testing and um, they came back and told me you have a fourth nerve palsy, a cranial nerve palsy. And I said, I don't know what that means. And they said, well, it just means that there's a cranial nerve that controls your eyes that's weak mm-hmm. and which is causing your double vision. I said, okay, well, so they said, now we need to figure out what's causing it. Um, so we need to do more tests. Yeah. And so they sent me to another neurologist that specializes in this disorder called myasthenia gravis. Oh, okay. Um, and so in this test, <laughs> this was awful. They take a needle and stick it in the muscles around your eye and poke around. What? No. Yes. Oh, yes. oh um, I'm like We're getting fidgety uh, right now. Just thinking. It was, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not fun. <sighs> uh, but they're measuring the electrical impulses of your muscles. Uh-huh. Um, that was awful. But then they also did these shocks. They, they shock you. Um, and those are very painful too. And just measure, you know, how much they'll shock you like in your arm and then measure, you know, how much of that signal is getting down to your hand. Um, that it turned out I didn't have myasthenia, Mm -hmm. which (laughs) I guess that was good. Um, obviously, you know, when you have double vision, it's neurological in nature. So we need to figure out what's going on. And so the doctor said, you know, we need to do an MRI of your brain. And so on our 15th wedding anniversary a year ago, um, they, they did an MRI of my brain and um, I immediately left. When I left, I'd said, you know, I want to copy these images. So um, I went home and looked at them on the computer. I didn't really know very well what I was looking at. I saw some things that were kind of like, eh, that might not be normal, but I don't know. Yeah. But that was our anniversary. So we went out to dinner that night and it was just the most peaceful dinner and we just let it go. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
which, you know, again, was a total God thing because normally it's in my nature to just be incredibly anxious. Like, what was that? I need to know some answers right now. But I, I, I was like, I can wait. Whatever it is, can wait till tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but the next day, my husband um, drove, Nick drove down to the, um, the imaging place, which was like a 45-minute drive, to pick up the written report. And um, he went and got it. And he didn't call me right away when he had it. So I kind of already knew, like, it's something. Because normally he would call me and tell me it's nothing if it was. Um, So he comes home and he walks in the room and he says, do you want to know what it says? (laughs) Yes, of course. Um, And he says, you have multiple sclerosis. And it was... You know, that initial moment of just it, it's like a weight coming on you and the world around you just freezes like, whoa, it's like a ton of bricks hitting you, you know, and, you know, I just, I almost like couldn't breathe. And I think my first reaction, I don't really remember too much about my reaction after that point, but I remember crying and just thinking, you know, I don't really know much about MS, but what I do know is that it's serious. I know that it's not curable and I know that it's a difficult disease to have. Mm-hmm. So um, I grieved. I spent a lot of time grieving over um, how my life was going to change and how the life of my family was going to change after this. But then after that initial shock, shock set in, it was amazing because I felt relief and I felt gratitude. And the relief and the gratitude was so much bigger than that shock and the pain and the fear that I had because it explained a lot of the other random stuff that I had going on. My eye was constantly twitching and I had to tell people like, I'm not winking at you. My eye is just twitching. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it explained a lot of that. And, you know, it was also a very clear answer to those prayers that I had been praying. Like I clearly do not need to be in an elementary school around sick children. As much as I love that job, I can't do that anymore. Mm. Um, and I know that God has given me a new testimony. He's given me a new story to tell about his faithfulness. And I'm so incredibly thankful for that because it means that he hasn't given up on me. He still has a job for me to do and he's got a new calling on my life. Mm-hmm. And so um, I felt like it was incredibly hopeful. And, um, you know, as, as, as shocking as that moment was, it was also one of my sweetest moments with God. And so after that, um, I saw a doctor, an incredible doctor. She specializes in MS, um, and she she did a bunch of blood work. Um, we did more MRIs of my neck and spine this time to confirm. And so on my 40th birthday, which was about a month after the original MRI, I, the diagnosis was confirmed. Mm. Why in the world did you pick these days? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that was not me. That was all God. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick these big milestone days too. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, yeah. You know, Christine, I I didn't really know you well when that came out in Bible study. And in fact, I believe I was out of town when you finally, or when you brought that diagnosis to the group. And mm-hmm. I... You know, I expected when I saw you after that for you to be a lot more somber and a lot more, um, yeah, like hopeless seeming. But my initial thought the first time I saw you was, really? She has a mess? Like you, 
you you seemed I mean you it wasn't like you were like everything's great this is fantastic I'm so you know like you were definitely in reality but you were also very hopeful and I think that that was um that in itself was a huge testimony to other people because in that group we've all a lot of us have been through some really terrible stuff and um you know we shared that burden with um, with each other. And I think it was really powerful to see, okay, I've got this, this diagnosis that's huge and I'm, st- I still have hope and, you know, God is still faithful. So I think that, you know, that was encouraging to me. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And I, I you know, like I said, when I first heard that diagnosis and was kind of processing through it with God, it was like, you know, yes, I do have a new testimony and I don't want to waste it. You know, I don't want this to be an opportunity for me to be bitter yeah. uh, because I think I made the mistake of getting on Google. Mm-hmm. You should never get on Google right after you've been diagnosed with something ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got on Google and just, you know, tried to find forums or whatever of people with MS and it just, and I'm not trying to knock the forums. They are very helpful. And now that I'm in like a little bit more of a calm down state, I'm like, okay, I understand where people are coming from. But you see a lot of people that are bitter. And it's not just about having MS. It could be about any life circumstance. And yeah. I just decided, you know, God, I don't want to be bitter. Mm. But anything else that happens, I don't want to be bitter about this. Like, I want my relationship with God to stay strong through this. Mm. Well, I'm bitter. sorry. Yeah, I think that's, and I think that that's what I've seen in you. Um, For those that may not know, can you tell us what MS is and what it does to your body? You know. Yeah, I've had to learn a lot about MS in the past year, and um, you know, it's it's been a big process of learning. Um, So MS is an autoimmune disease, which means that your immune system attacks healthy tissues in your body. Um, and there's a lot of different types of autoimmune disease diseases. There's some that will attack the joints, which is rheumatoid arthritis. There's some that will attack the thyroid, which is called Graves' disease. But MS, multiple sclerosis, is an autoimmune disease that attacks the central nervous system in the brain and in the spine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, you know, your nerve cells send electrical signals from your brain to different parts of your body. And very much like a power cord um, has a coating around it to protect it your nerves have what's called myelin. Mm -hmm. It protects them and and, and it maintains the integrity of the strength of the electrical signal and it avoids damaging the tissues around it from that electric signal. Mm -hmm. And so MS attacks the myelin on the coating of the nerve cells. And, you know, your nerves are responsible for a lot of different things in your body. And so MS can manifest itself in a lot of different ways in different people. Um, basically anything that a nerve controls, MS could potentially affect. Now there's some things that are more common than others. For example, vision um, is one, um, right. walking is another one, but it could be any number of things. And so it, it tends to be a little bit more difficult to diagnose when it's not one of those common things, but um, that's, that's kind of the gist of what it is. Um, the name sclerosis um, comes from a hardening of the tissue. So it's scar tissues. And so that's how they're able to diagnose it. They can see scar tissue on images of the brain and of the spinal cord. Okay. Yeah. Um, and how, how do they treat that? There's a lot of different ways to treat it. Um, 
a long time ago, um, you know, when, when they were treating people with cancer, they started realizing, oh, you know, cancer drugs, chemotherapy can um, destroy people's, not destroy, but weaken people's immune systems. Why don't we give this to people who already have overactive immune systems and see how it works? And so these drugs were developed that um, started becoming more and more specialized as time went on. So um, for multiple sclerosis medicines, typically the way they work is that they will kill healthy, not healthy, but overactive immune cells. And so that's the main way of treating it. That is, um, it's called a disease modifying therapy. Uh, There's a lot of different types, but that's the main gist of it is that you're shutting down or tamping down the immune system so that it doesn't um, attack. Um, and, and, you know, science has come such a long way over the years. Uh, I remember when I was diagnosed, my doctor told me, you know, there used to only be about three drugs on the market for MS. And mm-hmm. now there's about 10 and there's more and more coming out every year, Wow, which is, which is great. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when you have MS, there's different types of MS. Um, the most common one is relapsing remitting, which is where, you know, everybody has a baseline of neurological function. It's, you know, for most adults, it's a fairly steady line. Um, but when you have a relapse, your ability to function drops mm-hmm. drastically and then eventually comes back up to a new baseline. It's slightly lower than it was before. It's not ever going to be back the same again. But, you know, obviously after repeated relapses over time, you begin to lose more and more function. Um, and so I totally lost my train of thought. Um, but in relapsing... You're good. You're <laughs> In relapsing MS, you do lose that function. And so uh, when you have, we're talking about drugs, Mm -hmm. when you have um, a relapse, they can put you on steroids and the steroids continue to weaken the immune system even further, but they also get rid of the inflammation in your body. And Mm -hmm. so that's standard treatment for when you have a relapse. Um, There's other types of MS where your function doesn't come back and you can go on steroids, um, but you know, you want to try to prevent the, the, the damage from being worse than it could be. Yeah. So you have the, the relapsing one, right? Yes. 80% of people who are diagnosed have relapsing remitting. Okay. And also just interesting fact is that for every three women that are diagnosed with MS, it's one man. Mm. And when men get diagnosed, it tends to be a lot worse. They tend to have, they're more likely to be involved. Uh, I'm sorry, not involved, but diagnosed with um, relapsing remit. I'm sorry, not relapsing. I just totally botched that. Men are more likely to be diagnosed with secondary progressive or primary progressive MS. Mm. Well, that's interesting. I've it only is. ever known women with it. Um, yeah, I guess it's much more because it's much more common in females. But yes, and and unfortunately for men, their survival rate tends to be a little bit lower than it is. Wow. Okay. So what was, what was your immediate response? I know you said you didn't want to be bitter. Did you, did you change the, how did your life change in those moments? It was hard. Um, like I said, there was a lot of grieving because, you know, everything had changed and it wasn't just me. Like I remember having to, that day that I found out, I, I pulled my kids into the room and I explained to them that I have MS explained what it means and I explained you know it's not contagious but it does mean that you know I'm going to need help and it's going to mean that you guys are probably going to have to be a little bit less kid and a little bit more adult now and and, you know I felt terrible that you have to say that to your child but you know 
this is the, the lot that all of us were dealt and we're going to deal with this together. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it wasn't just that, you know, there were these little changes day to day, but also just, you know, long term um, plans for the future have changed. And there was a lot of grieving over that about, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to need a lot of help from people and I'm not very good about asking for help. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny how God sort of just, you're going to get better at this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I also grieved over the fact that, um, you know, I had this, this idea of what my future was going to be and that was gone. And I grieved over the sacrifices people were going to have to make. And that, you know, there was this identity that I had beforehand and it was, it was changed. And, you know, I know a lot of people will say like, my disease doesn't define me. And it doesn't define me, but that old me that existed before the diagnosis does, is gone. You know, I I am a new person now. I have a new set of things, struggles, gifts, changes to deal with. Um, it's, it's, it's a big change. And, um, I've learned just through everything that I've been through over my life. Um, you know, I felt like everything that I had experienced led up to preparing me for this. Um, you know, God taught me a lot of really hard lessons about his sovereignty. And so when I had to deal with it this time around, it wasn't so tough. It was tough, but it wasn't like, you know, a slap in the face kind of tough. And, you know, he taught me a lot about forgiveness and mercy. And so I felt like he had been spending my entire life equipping me already to deal with this. And so I was thankful for that. Um, But I've also learned through those experiences to just ask God, what is it that you want me to learn from this? What, what is it that you want me to do out of this? I'm willing to learn whatever it is you're willing to teach me. And I'm willing to share it with whoever you want me to share it with. I will talk to a rock if you want me to talk to a rock. And, you know, it, 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 I knew always that God had his hand in this. Um, And I have to be careful to say that God did not cause me to have MS, but he did allow it. He allowed absolutely. And I knew that he, he could have said, no, I don't want this for her, but he didn't. And there has to be a deep sense of trust for me to say, you know, okay, God, I, I believe that you have a plan in this. I believe that you've allowed this. And so because of that, it gave me a sense of peace. Um, just knowing that whatever it brings, there's nothing that God can't redeem. And I might not see it. I probably won't see it this side of heaven, but there's nothing he can't redeem. There is no dark place that he cannot shine his light on. There is nothing that he's powerless to heal. But I also knew, and this was really kind of another shocking thing, um, I knew that I was not supposed to pray this away. Mm. I just had this very clear sense one day we were in church and I remember praying and I just got this very clear. I didn't like hear God's voice. You know, I don't think many people do, but there was just this very clear sense to me. Like, this is where I placed you. I don't want you to pray this away because I've got some things to work through you in this. And I don't want you to fight me on it. In the same way that, you know, it made me think about like Jesus when he was in the garden, he was praying, he said, God, if it's your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Mm. And that's, I was like, you know, I don't want a Jesus who was dragged kicking and screaming to the cross. Right. And I want to be like the Jesus who willingly went because he had his eyes on something else, something of future glory. Mm. And that's what I want. That's awesome. How did your family respond to this diagnosis? 
you know, you said you had to tell the kids they'd have to grow up a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is a little bit of a funny story. Um, so my youngest, she, like I said, she's six. And um, this past fall, just a few months ago, she came home from school and she had a little bit of sniffles. But we were laying in bed and we were snuggling. And because I'm on immune suppressing drugs, I really shouldn't be around her. But I wanted to snuggle my baby. And so I had the blanket up over my face. And she said, why are you doing that? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to catch your cold. So she grabs another end of the blanket and pulls it up over her face. And she says, well, I don't want to catch your MS. Turkey. Like that. So, yeah, she's, it's, you know, it's amazing how she's had such a little snarky sense of humor about it. <laughs> um, I think my older kids are a little bit afraid to make jokes about it. But, you know, I appreciate that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but on a serious side, um, you know, I think my older two children, uh, my son and my daughter, were, I think, nervous, afraid about how it was going to be from here on out and, you know, just kind of cautious around me. Is it okay to still hug you? Is it okay to, you know, you know, can I do this or that? You know, it, just trying to find a new normal. And I think there's, they're still trying to figure that out. And, you know, it's, I've had a f- three relapses, I think, now since I've been diagnosed, and it's been cool to see the way that they have grown and responded in it. Um, my middle child wants to cook, and so, you know, she knows when I've had a relapse. She's on it. She will go make dinner, and she'll make it for the whole family. And she's 12. That's <laughs> incredible. I, it's amazing. But she enjoys doing it, and, you know, my kids have all just responded in their own unique ways, and it wasn't, you know, like, you know, I was sticking my finger in their faces. You have to grow up. This was just, they, it naturally flowed out of them, which was so cool. Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, there's downsides to it too. Um, you know, I, I, right now is not a good time to be out in public um, for mm-hmm. me, especially with, with everybody being quarantined. And so we've been in the house. I have not been inside of a public place since the beginning of March. And um, I know my kids are kind of they got ants in their pants. They're ready to go out. They want to go yeah. visit their friends. They want to, you know, one of their friends had a pool party. My, my daughter's friends had a pool party she wanted to go to. And I was like, you know, I really, I feel awful having to say no, but the risk right now is just not worth it. And yeah, I felt sad. And like my heart breaks because there's so many times that my kids want to do things like that. And we can't. And one of the things about MS is that it's, um, heat is, the enemy. It's, you know, I can be out in the heat for about 10 or 15 minutes and then I have to go in because I start losing my ability to function. I can't balance. I can't see my leg starts going numb. And so I can't take the kids to the pool. I can't play with them outside for very long. And, um, you know, that, that does cost them a lot. And, you know, I, my kids have said many times, just very regretfully and sadly, just, I really wish you didn't have MS. (laughs) I know me too. Sorry that you have to deal with that. Um, you know, I want to make it as less impactful on their life as I can. But, you know, there's some things that you just can't avoid. Yeah. And, you know, and with my husband, the way it affected him is, like I said, he's a little bit of a worrier. And so um, it's hard for him when he has to go away on a work trip because he's like, you know, what if you have a relapse? Like during my relapses, like I can't even get up to walk to the restroom by myself. Oh, my um, I get so dizzy. I, you know, there's a potential for falling over. I feel incredibly weak. My leg is numb. I, you know, it's, 
it's very difficult to just exist and and I need and so I understand why it's really hard for him to want to leave but you know sometimes he has to but that's been really cool too because there's been so many people around us that have um, sort of gathered together and showed support about you know I'll help you I'd love to help you please you know let me help you like great Um, but my husband is really um, the upshot of that is that he's been a really fantastic advocate for me in terms of you know, asking the right questions at the doctor's office and um, just making sure I have the right medications and, you know, pushing, pushing for this test and not that one and just advocating for me in an amazing way. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's been sad to answer your question in, yeah. in a short form now. It's been sad. It's been difficult, but it's also been beautiful to see the way that God is changing my family. I think that's, you know, something that they're going to appreciate later on in life. Um, I think a lot of times, um, you know, we, we, we want to shield our kids from, from so much, but your kids are having to kind of confront that early on and see the world doesn't revolve around me. And, yeah, they have to kind of learn that, like, if we're going to survive as a family, we have to serve one another. And when we serve one another— you know, God is glorified in that and all of our needs are met. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When it, you know, I, I've always told my kids, you know, compassion breeds selflessness. Mm. Suffering breeds compassion. Compassion breeds selflessness. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I've had, I've been talking to my kids about a lot lately that, you know, we can't look at suffering as the worst thing that's ever happened to you. That's not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not having Jesus. Yeah. Because, you know, I can endure the difficulties, but not without Jesus. I really love Christine's honesty and her joy in the midst of fear and difficulty. I love how she encouraged me to do the same. Thanks again for listening. Do yourself a favor and check out my husband, Phil Baker's podcast, Reclaiming the Faith. It has been so eye-opening to see how the early Christians interpreted the teachings of Jesus and how that applies to us today. Find it at reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. Also, you can find me on faithfulpodcast.podbean.com or on Instagram at Faithful Podcast. I would really love to hear from you, and I'd love it if you could give me an honest rating and review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are key to helping people find the podcast so that it can be a blessing to them. Also, make sure you subscribe while you're there to the Faithful Podcast so that you never miss an episode. Have a great week, and remember to stay faithful, friends.